1: Welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and I'm back for the second week in a row. We've arrived squarely in the month of June, which means that most high schools are already adjourned for the summer. Students all over the country are catching up on their favorite pastime, sleep. Sleep and I don't blame them. Uh, That push to the end of the year is always a grueling effort with final exams and graduation parties and end-of-the-year concerts and performances. And while this show is certainly all about the things you can do to improve your chances of getting into your best fit college, we also strive to be a show that recognizes the importance of balance in that process. So please enjoy your summer. Now, it's a time for you to shift gears a little, you change your pace, you can emphasize areas that might need your attention, but it's also time for pool parties, late night binges of episodes of The Office, and extra sleep. Keep that balance and get your mind ready for the fall. Now, on our show today we want to address some ways that the summer can be beneficial for different populations of students. Um, In our second segment, we'll talk a little bit about younger students and how they might assess their performance over the course of the academic year and think about ways that they can get ready for the coming fall. But before we do that, in our first segment today, we want to talk about some of the ways that students can leverage these summer months to take care of standardized test obligations right? Uh, probably you don't want to start your summer thinking about standardized testing, but we'll talk all about uh, the reasons why it's important to be aware of this stuff right now. Uh, and joining me for this conversation is Dr. Megan Stupendek, the Senior Director of Instruction for our partner, Arbor Bridge. Welcome to the show, Megan.
2: Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. So um, we're going to talk all about summer test prep. And, you know, as we were getting ready to get onto the show, um, you were talking off the air. Um we were talking about ages of students that we want to think about. Now, seniors are out, right, because they have already uh, graduated. They're on to the next stage. Um, what students' uh, ages are we sort of thinking about in terms of preparing for uh, testing this summer and into the early fall?
2: So there's really two buckets of students that we're talking about. So we'll first ta- tackle the uh students who just finished their junior year and are really looking forward to that final, last push in senior year. And those kids actually have sort of two options for the summer. They can both prep for the exam if they want to take it in the fall, or one of the big things that's happened in the last year or so, and really this year is the big year for it, is that the SAT and ACT added test dates in the summertime, and the summertime is great for those students to get another test under their belt and on their record. Now, that's sort of one group. That's the junior, the kids who just finished their junior year or their 11th grade. Now, anyone right. who's younger, the 10th grade year is sort of a, the students who just finished 10th grade or sophomores They're sort of in a different space. Those kids can start to dabble in the test prep world. They may want to use the time to figure out, uh, maybe take a diagnostic exam of each test and figure out, okay, once junior year starts and I actually do get into test prep and really want to think about these exams, use a diagnostic in the summertime to figure out which one you're going to focus on. So you don't necessarily have to pedal to the metal and do everything. In fact, those kids shouldn't probably take the summer, SAT or ACT, because they're just 10th graders or students who just finished 10th grade, you're just not academically ready this summer. Um, But you can use it to start putting your plan into place and sort of getting a lay of the land. And for some kids, they may want to start a little bit of their test prep to get a little head start in case they're going to be taking the exams um, in the fall or um, most students will be taking it in the spring of their junior
1: year. Yeah. Now, I, I got a question today from a family, and, and they were sort of interested in a student actually preparing to take the ACT as a, a sophomore. So they're finishing ninth grade and thinking about 10th grade. Um, and, you know, I don't know about your take on this and when it might be okay for students who are especially young to think about testing. But from the point of view of, of an admission officer we never looked at the date that a student took the exam as a measure of their score. So if you get a great score as a ninth grader, it's not more valuable in the admission process than getting the same score as an 11th grader or a 12th grader. Uh, Are there ever occasions where you might encourage a, a very young student finishing up ninth grade to even think about testing? Or would you sort of tell them to hold their horses and wait a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think it's great to have the perspective of a college admissions actual officer who sort of sees where the where this all leads, and I, I, we in the testing world also agree with that idea. It's just. Hold your horses. You're only going to get stronger academically. So even if you could do a great, you know, come out with a very strong score even at the end of your ninth grade year, why not get a few extra points by putting another year of academics under your belt and really take the test when it's meant to be taken? Really, the earliest most students are ready would be probably the spring of their junior year, as I mentioned, to take their first official exam. Um, But there are a few exceptions when students might be very advanced in their math classes in particular. They might be ready maybe junior or fall, but really that's kind of, that's really the earliest time we suggest the student take their official first crack at the exam.
1: I just love hearing you say that, and I, I want to get that sound clip and, and <laughs> send it to all of my young students just so they, they can hear that from an expert on testing, um, because I, I think that's huge. We want to confine the testing process to the shortest period of time we possibly can so that we can use the rest of our high school experience to focus on other things. Um, you know, testing is something that we have to do. It is important. But we don't want it to take up multiple years of study. Now, yeah. you're talking about actually, summer test. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. something yeah. there
2: too. Um, I think it's also I think you've hit on a really good point is that it's also the most efficient when you wait to do prep. Because I think the other thing that can happen with families and students is even if maybe you still plan to take the test as a junior in your spring, Like the end of ninth grade, you're kind of chomping at the bit. Should I take a practice test? Should I start taking test prep now this summer so I can get ready? And I generally say to students, you don't need to do um, even test prep as test prep and start taking practice tests until you're really ready and you've got you know a couple of months leading up to your official exam date. Because it's kind of lost time. Instead, if you're really chomping at the bit, you really want to do something this summer. The best thing you can do is shore up your Foundations of academics. So make sure that yeah. you're reading a lot. Reading uh, nonfiction is a really good use of your summer time. That isn't necessarily test prep, but is going to set you up for success when the test prep period comes.
1: That's great. Um, I, I wish I could ask you about your reading list, but let's fo- <laughs> we'll, we'll focus a little bit on on testing for now and, and test prep for now, and then and then maybe uh, maybe you have some time for you to drop a couple of suggestions for things you can read. But I, I wanted to get to sort of the main uh, thrust. You you had said that testing uh, this summer was a really big deal this year in particular. Um, why is it such a big topic this year, and and what what is it that students can kind of be looking for uh, for summer testing?
2: Yeah, so the reason that this year is the big sort of uh, uh, year and push for summer prep and summer testing is that this is the first year that both the SAT and ACT will offer an exam date in the summertime. So traditionally for generations, the only test days were during the school year. And then mm-hmm. last year, the SAT added a test in August. And this year, the ACT is adding a test in July. So it's available um, for either test, whichever one you choose, in the summertime now. Um, And that's going to, we've actually already noticed on the test prep end, a major shift in students' test-taking plans. We've got a lot of students who are finishing their junior year and planning to take this summer test. So um, the major reason that this even happened was because parents and students talked to the SAT and the ACT people and said, look, this is the best time for us to take the test. This is when we have the time to prepare, the time when we can, you know, we're not Shuttling from band practice to theater practice to sports and then back to school, um, this is really when our students want to take the exam. And, and the, both the SAT and you can listen.
1: So, that, those new test dates are fantastic, but they don't come without an asterisk. And, and as somebody who's based out in Oregon, I work with a lot of California students. Um, I was working with, um, uh, in a conversation with a student just a couple of days ago, and dad said, You know, there's this summer test date, but I can't, we don't have access to it. Um, what do you do if you're in California, New York, um, or out of uh, overseas? We've got a lot of listeners who are international. Um, are these test dates available for them? What, what might they be able to do?
2: Yeah, you hit the the two uh, the biggest asterisks on this um, new policy, and the two big ones to know are that it, the summer dates are only available in the United States, so international kids are sort of out of luck; um, they won't have access to SAT or ACT in the summer. The other big one in the United States has to do with California and New York. So, SAT luckily is available in every state in the summertime. So that the SAT is not affected. But ACT is affected by a state law in both California and New York, and it's pretty complicated. I won't go really into it. But basically the ACT decided not to offer the July test in California or New York State. So for those students, really the only options they have is they can either – travel to take the test, and I know I'm based out of New York City, a lot of my students actually are just going to jump the bridge or the tunnel over to Jersey or to Connecticut and take the test there because it's only a 45-minute drive or so. They'll be doing that for the summertime. Um, The other option that those students have is that they can, um, maybe this may actually force their hand a little bit. Maybe they'll pick SAT instead of ACT for this reason. Mm. Um, Mm. Or the other option is to use, instead of thinking about uh, it as a lost opportunity that you can't take the summer test date, know that you're going to be probably targeting that first fall exam that's coming for the ACT, and that would be in September, uh, that they'll want to take that test and then use their uh, summertime for prep instead of the actual administration of the exam. The other, I do want to highlight another sort of asterisk on this entire situation, and that is Limited seats. So even though your state may offer the ACT for uh, the ACT and SAT summer exams, you may not actually have a seat to sit in. Um, and the mm. reason for that is, um, as most of us know in the United States, the places that host the SAT and ACT are local high schools. But many local high schools are closed during the summertime, and it was actually pretty hard for the SAT and ACT to negotiate to get schools to bring in the staff and the janitorial staff that can turn on all the air conditioning and the lighting and restart the systems and bring teachers into Proctor. It's actually pretty difficult to get that all into place and because of that there aren't as many seats available for the summer exams as there normally are during the school year. So with that being said, if you're thinking about taking this exam in the summertime, I would highly recommend getting online today or in the next week or so with the SAT and ACT websites and seeing if seats are available and where they are and getting registered because the spots are going fast.
1: Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question, Megan, because I, I was talking to my student um, who was considering the summer testing in California and, and dad was saying, well, maybe we can go out of state to take the exam. Uh, it's a little bit harder, obviously, for Californians than it is for New Yorkers because of just, just borders on the West. Um, but what about comfort level in the space that you're in? What about the the element of sort of routine where you wake up in your bed and you eat a breakfast in your kitchen and you go off to the test center that you're familiar with? It, how much... Does does that impact uh, students in terms of their actual test performance?
2: It really depends on the student. So if some students have, um, are really attuned to that experience and the mindset of the test and the emotions. Um, but I will, and so those students probably are not going to do, have their best showing when, um, if they do move locations. Uh, mm-hmm. But I won't say that like, that there are students who are not at all affected by this. Everyone has a little bit of effect. The, the test is in part, it's, it's not just content, it's how you perform on test day and any athlete can tell you that. The way you, um, the sort of your test day routine and the way you wake up and what you eat really has an effect on that. Um, but I will say that um, I have had students, particularly international students, for whom there are uh, severely limited access. There's severely limited access even during the school year to SAT or ACT, mm-hmm. and those right. students always have to travel. And we deal with that all the time at Arbor Bridge. And so we um, normally will work with students on figuring out ways um, outside of the bed they wake up in or you know what they eat that day to create a test. A routine for them so that they do feel comfort, even if they're in a situation where they had to travel or um, they may be out of their comfort zone.
1: Great. Great. I think that's really helpful. And I want to reiterate what you said before, that this is largely for students who are rising seniors who just finished 11th grade and they're thinking about taking the exam this summer. But you also talked about that second group of students who are just finishing 10th grade. And so when we think about summertime and testing for that age of students, it's more focused on prep. Um, What are some of the benefits for students to prepare in the summer, even given that they might not take the exam until the spring of their junior year if they're keeping on that timeline? Why get started now?
3: Yeah, I think
2: so. the summer prep, what's great about it is there are really a couple of benefits. I mean, the big one is you can just focus on prep. You're not um, you know, buried in schoolwork and doing all of your extracurriculars necessarily at the same time, so you can just focus on prep, and it's easier to get it in. I think the second thing is that students can do sort of more efficient prep. They can do more intense prep. So instead of doing during the school year, you can only fit in an hour a week. You can probably do five or six hours a week and, and, and do maybe a full – test prep course in uh, a month or so. Um, So those are really the big, big benefits. But I will say there are a few drawbacks as well. I think one of the big things students should keep in mind is that when you don't have schoolwork routine on your back, it actually becomes paradoxically enough the less you have on your plate the easier it is to procrastinate and be kind of kind of um, unmoored from your schedule so you just <laughs> no want to make sure that it's you just want to make sure in those cases that you have a schedule and that you're committed to following it um, and I think also thinking about scheduling is that as you were mentioning Ian, and sort of when we we're beginning the conversation is that summer is also time for relaxing students need to recharge you, you have other things you do during summer as well you go on family vacations or camp or you might be doing um, you might have a job at outside of school as well during the summertime, and it's important to be realistic about what you can achieve in the summer for test prep, so setting out that schedule, knowing what your conflicts are, don't expect you to be the the one person in your family while everyone's outside at the beach, being in a hotel room, taking a daily practice exam, that's just not, I don't want to do that, as much as I love the SAT and ACT, I know not normally, normally students don't, and I would not wish that on any child, so.
1: Right, you don't want to be the kid at the beach with the giant SAT prep book uh, working through practice exams. It's also not exactly representative of a testing. Uh, environment, right? You're not going to have the sound of the ocean when you're working through that evidence-based reading and writing section. Um, I wanted to ask you one other one other question uh, before we let you go for it today, and and it's around um, something that families often ask me. You know, they'll say, "All right, we'll do a ton of prep here this summer, uh, and then take the test in the spring." Um, do you lose a lot of what you gain from prep uh, if you don't have a consistent? touch point uh, to, you know, sort of keep yourself familiar with the exam over time?
2: Yeah, that, that actually does come into play. And that's an important, I'm really glad you brought this up because it, it's sort of a a, a a bit of a caveat, a little warning um, for families who think or who want to do a really intense period in the summer and then do their testing many months later. Generally, we would recommend, and what we've seen sort of in our test prep um, experience is that if a student takes more than a two-week break between their test prep and their official exam, they are going to lose not just the momentum, but a lot of testing is about habit, about having um, sort of like knowing in your bones what to do, and that goes away the less you practice it. Uh, so, what I would normally recommend is, if the student wants to do sort of an intense period in the summer and then doesn't plan to do it until the spring, I think first of all you might actually want to think about delaying and maybe starting your test prep in the winter preparing for the spring and not wasting time and money in the summertime. But if because of your schedule, maybe you have sports in the winter or fall, you do want to do the summer prep, what I would recommend then is you do some summer prep and then save some of your money and time and all the resources you might put into and may plan maybe the four weeks leading up to your official test date for more either tutoring or self prep and practice exams to get back into the swing of things. So you can sort of like I said again, get that back in the bo- your bones and and also get that content back sort of front of mind
1: all right that's that's fantastic megan and and folks i i don't know if you heard her say this but she loves the sat and the act uh <laughs> which is so rare and uh we really have uh loved our partnership with arbor bridge and and really appreciate the kind of work that they do uh megan how can folks learn more about arbor bridge if they're interested
2: you can just reach out to us at our website at arborbridge.com and you can find all of our information there as well as you'll be able to find a link to find me if you, if you ever need to reach out to me directly. I'm always happy to answer parent questions, counselor questions, student questions, anyone who has any questions at any time.
1: Awesome. Thanks, uh, Megan. I don't know what you just signed yourself up for, but uh, I'm glad that you did <laughs> it. Um, and I want to thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing your expertise with us.
2: Thanks so and I really appreciate it. Thanks,
1: everybody. All right, fantastic. Folks, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about summer planning for those younger students and some goal setting associated with that, so don't go away.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
4: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are
0: listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation.
1: All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, Before we get into our next guest and our next topic, I want to introduce a new school to you in our weekly Spotlight series. Today, we're taking a trip to upstate New York. Study what you love and be who you are. These are two reasons why bright, creative, and ambitious students choose Hamilton College, a down-to-earth liberal arts college in central New York, one of a handful of selective colleges without distribution requirements. Hamilton fosters a lifetime love of learning by encouraging its 1,850 students to chart their own academic journeys. While students can choose from a range of liberal arts and science majors, including options like geoarchaeology, jurisprudence, law and justice studies, and world politics, all students are expected to develop strong written and public speaking skills. Thanks to the college's writing and oral communication centers, students have plenty of support as they tackle Hamilton's many writing intensive courses. Wondering how you'll gain job experience in the quaint village of Clinton, New York? In addition to offering several study abroad programs, Hamilton features popular domestic study options in New York City and Washington, D.C., which combine academic seminars with relevant internships. Approximately two-thirds of students participate in some kind of off-campus study pro- program during their four years at Hamilton, and it's good to know that Hamilton is one of the few colleges to be both need-blind in the app process, as well as guaranteeing that first-year domestic students receive 100% of their domestic need in financial aid. That's a really rare thing. Uh, it also happens to share a name with one of the most popular musicals of this decade. So that's Hamilton College for you. Now, uh, my next guest... Uh, the reason that I included an upstate New York college uh, on this uh, school spotlight is because she is about to take her own trip to upstate New York, leaving the West Coast in Portland for Rochester tomorrow. So please welcome my Portland colleague and friend for the last time in Portland, Abigail Anderson. Welcome to the show, Abigail.
5: Thank you so much, Ian. I was thinking that was just wonderful serendipity you were talking about Hamilton, but of course <laughs> it was planned.
1: <laughs> no. Yeah. No, we get to choose those, and uh, as you know, I'm... <laughs> Still a little bit angry with you for leaving us, but excited for your new adventure. And so I, I thought I'd call that out. Um, and by the time this show airs, you will be in New York. So
5: I will be a New Yorker. Yes,
1: that's fantastic. So let's let's get on to the topic of hand, which is uh, which is uh, helping younger students think a little bit about what is coming next, right? So if you're an eighth grader, a ninth grader, maybe even a tenth grader, um, there aren't as many sort of relevant action items for you to take that connect to the application process. But there are still some things that you can do to check in on your progress and and make sure that you're moving forward. And I want to start with the youngest group of students, first of all. I know that you work a lot with students that are just starting uh, ninth grade who are thinking about choosing high schools, um, who are reflecting on their middle school time. Um, What are some things that an eighth grader might just initially think about as they finish middle school, and are taking a look backward at the year?
5: So you're totally right. I used to work in boarding school admissions. So a lot of my job was helping students trans- transition from eighth grade into ninth grade in the high school setting. And one of the biggest kind of takeaways that I took from that experience was trying to mitigate the number of changes that you're going to experience just by virtue of the fact of attending a new high school. So there are going to be a lot of things that are changing academically for a middle schooler in high school. The rigor is going to increase. Maybe the length of class is going to increase. Maybe your teachers aren't going to communicate with one another about when projects are happening anymore. Those are the kinds of things that students can't control. But being able to control knowing how to find your locker or what hallways you're going to take to walk from class to class. Little things like that, while they sound like, oh, I'll figure that out within the first week, I don't need to worry right. about that, those are definitely the kind of things that over the course of the first semester, if you don't have them figured out, could negatively um, negatively affect your transition to high school. And as a gentle reminder, the first semester of high school is used in your transcript and it is, your grades are seen. Well, it's not the most important semester by any means. Um, We do, we would have seen those grades when we worked together in admissions at Reed Um, and we would have evaluated them. So I think mitigating those changes as as you've got these 10 weeks before the school year starts right now is a really great place to start.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of those unknowns, and and especially unknowns around these these academic expectations. I think I remember being in middle school, and and they kept telling me, well, when high school comes, it's going to be different. And we had no concept of what they were talking about. Um, it was just this like big scary albatross that like now you're going to mm-hmm. high school and things are different. Um, what are some things that students can do to reflect on, especially their study habits and and making connections between how they studied or prepared for their, their homework as a middle schooler versus the kinds of things that they need to do next year as a high schooler. What kind of reflection is helpful there?
5: I actually just started working with an eighth grader this week who said something to me that immediately made me go, oh, I wish all my students did what this young man said he, he did. He just finished up eighth grade and he had a bunch of final tests and projects. Um, And about a week after they were turned back into him, he went back and reviewed them. Um, He wasn't just reviewing them, though, to see what content he missed. So the review wasn't about going back and mastering or remastering any of the content from eighth grade. His review was to help him think about how he prepared for those final exams, Mm -hmm. the ways he studied, the ways he organized his time. Maybe if he had procrastinated, he was really thinking about what worked for me in eighth grade and what didn't work for me. And I thought that was incredibly forward thinking and wise of him to be doing.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, it's great to have that information, right, It's almost a diagnostic and and. I, I try and get a lot of students to do that, to think about what are your study habits in the classes you're successful in and why do they work out for you? What are the study habits in classes that maybe you struggle with? Why doesn't that work out for you? But thinking more about process than outcomes. Um, you know, why is it that you're, you're getting the results that you're getting at the front end? Um But imagine you do that, right? So you look backward and you think a little bit about your process and and now you've got all this data. Um, How can you set some goals for yourself in the coming year? What are some things that you might think about uh, as you enter high school academically that you might not necessarily know what to expect, but you want to make sure that you've got some concrete things that you can keep track of?
5: For sure. So, I would I would keep a list of what worked well, what study habits worked well. So, was it a particular way you organized your notebook? Was it working from a certain hour in the evening and ending by a certain hour? So, for example, you know, maybe every night for preparing for study, uh, final exams, you gave yourself a study hall of working from 7 to 8.30 without interruption. Did that work really well for you? I would make a list of the things that worked well I would also write down a list of things that weren't working so well so that you can come back to this and remind yourself. I also think just setting some goals is, is part of that process. So by making that list of what works and what doesn't work, you're kind of inadvertently setting some clear goals for yourself in the coming year. If yeah. you know that setting aside two hours every night uninterrupted where you turn off your phone notifications and you don't get on certain websites that suck your time. Um, you make that goal for yourself right now. And you say, my goal is Sunday night through Thursday night. I work from seven to 9 PM uninterrupted and write that down. And I think it's really important to have somebody else in your life who keeps you accountable for that. So if you can tell your parents or a sibling or a friend, um that this is what you're doing and that they, they can support you in that that's a really really helpful way in actually being successful in achieving your goals when you have that accountability
1: right yeah, you can also do a, a, some sort of a visual tracker so that you you start Sunday through Thursday. You've got your three weeks that you're looking at coming up and you just check off uh, the square on that calendar every time you achieve that particular goal. And you can start to see yourself building momentum and, and setting that habit, right? I, I don't know how true this is, but I heard once or twice or three times that you set a habit by doing something consistently for three weeks. And I think that that's a really good period of time to test Something that you want to test and if it's not working for you, you can reassess it, but you want to be committed to a thing for a long period of time, in order to have reliable evidence that it works or doesn't work for you and in, in the new high school world. Um, yeah, yeah, I want to fast forward a year now. So we're we're talking now about ninth graders, um, and some of the things that maybe they're reflecting on. And I would imagine that you would have a lot of the same advice for them on, you know, how your courses worked. Except now they've got a little bit of a better idea of what the high school culture is all about. Um, what about looking at extracurricular activities? Um, it's a it's an entirely different world in high school in terms of sports and music and clubs, and there's just so much more going on than what you might have seen in middle school. And sometimes that can be overwhelming for a freshman. How might you reflect on your extracurricular engagement and think about ways to, you know, keep a strong, solid commitment over summer and into the fall of your sophomore year?
5: You know, I think one of the things that's challenging about activities, particularly for 10th graders, is that they're in this weird in-between in ninth grade? Nobody expects to be the leader of a club or to hold a position, um, but you're usually by the end of ninth grade feeling really excited about a club or two and wanting to step up, wanting to take on a leadership or a leadership position or maybe have more responsibility. But that's not always possible when you have a club or. Um, a leadership team that's chock full of 11th and 12th graders. And so, I think it's really important in 10th grade to not get discouraged and to not feel like, well, that's not even worth my time because I'm not doing anything special. I'm just, you know, a member of a club. Um, I think that 10th grade is a great time to really focus in on the things, the activities and the extracurriculars that you really do like to do, it's okay to drop things you figured out in ninth grade you're not totally in love with. But I also think 10th grade is a great time to say, how can I step up within the club in maybe a way that's not defined? You know, it's not a president. It's not a treasurer. But it's um, taking on a project nobody else wants to take on or coming in early in the morning to hang up signs for an event that your club is hosting, how can you step up as a young member, but a really committed member of the activities that you're doing? I think that's one of a really fabulous goal to think about for 10th grade.
1: Yeah. And it might, it might take some time to write all that, you know, stuff down. Like what are the clubs and organizations that I was actually a part of this past year? What were the Mm -hmm. things that we did? Um, what were the main events where Who were the people that were involved in organizing those events? Were they always juniors or seniors? Where were other sophomores involved? Okay, maybe I can fill that role this coming year. Um, you might also think about sketching out for yourself a bit of a four-year plan for a particular club or organization. You know, what, what ultimately am I looking to do within this club, not just next year, but as an 11th grader and 12th grader? And how can I do certain things as a 10th grader that provide a stepping stone towards the next run. That can help you in a couple of ways. First of all, it can make sure that you're focused on uh, doing meaningful things in your 10th grade year that are valuable to you. But secondly, it can help you to sort of see whether your activities have legs or not. You know, are you going to stay connected to this particular club or is it always going to be the same thing for you? And is that rewarding? Is that something you want to be a part of? Uh, So it's always good, I think, to take a moment and and reflect back uh, and look at this stuff. Um, Abigail, how would you recommend that students think about doing this in terms of their summer timeline? When's a good time to reflect? When is a good time to revisit? Um, What might students be thinking about, you know, when when they get back to, you know, a week or two before school starts in the fall?
5: I would reflect on this right away. I think I just heard at the tail end of your previous segment the idea that um, summer creep can kick in and you can really kind of let your uh, school year routines slide very quickly in summer. I know that's true for me when I just take a vacation. So I would have this conversation or, well, I was going to, I would make these lists as soon as possible. One yeah. thing that I was just going to mention was you and I, Ian, I think are very visual people. We love to write things yeah. down and see things written out. Um some of the students or parents who listen to this uh podcast might not have such visual tendencies and I think it's totally okay if you're more of an auditory listener or a learner to just have a conversation talk this through with somebody and maybe that's how you do your self reflection. Um right. but again I would be doing these as quickly as possible bef- you know before summer kicks into high gear and then again I would check in on the reflection you did at the end of the school year right before the beginning of the school year. I'd say one to two weeks ahead of the school year so that you can go in to the first day of school and be clear on what your activities goals are. If if you have to sign up for anything or maybe make an adjustment to your 10th grade course schedule in order to accommodate one of your goals.
1: Yeah, and and this is just awesome practice. I mean, you and I do this stuff I feel like every year when we get through a new cycle of students that we've worked with, we, we, we want to evaluate what worked and what didn't. What are we going to try with our students next year? Um, you do this all the time in you know, your career when you're doing project management and you have to think back about what worked and what didn't. So this is really great practice that when you come to the end of something and school is so convenient and that there are clear ends and starts all the time. Uh, when you come to the end of a thing, it's it's great to look back and think about, okay, what would I do differently? What worked? What didn't? Um, it's always really, really helpful. Um, Abigail, I wanted to ask you one final question. We only have a little bit of time for this, but we're talking about all of this content um, totally removed from the admission process. We're not talking at all about colleges or what th- they're looking for or you know uh, what a, a student might be aiming for in terms of competitiveness. Is there any reason for a student, especially a, a rising ninth grader, a rising 10th grader, to be thinking about this kind of plan in terms of a particular college or university?
5: No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay.
1: good. I, yeah.
5: I think that, yes. Yeah.
1: Good. That's, I, I mean, that's a really quick answer. for, the, for the answer. <laughs> just,
5: to give, just to give a little bit more color here, I think that in doing this type of reflection, you're preparing yourself for admission to any type of college.
0: Right. You cannot
5: ever predict what college is going to be looking for a flautist or a football player or a mathematician in a particular year. So trying to gain your activities based on a particular college, to me, seems like a fruitless exercise,
0: yeah. Um, but
5: if you're really pursuing what you like to do, and you're setting goals to imp- improve what you already love to do, you're preparing yourself to apply to any school that you want to go to.
1: Right, right. Figure out what the shape of yourself is first, and then figure out where that shape is going to fit uh, later on down Thank the road when you start choosing colleges. Um Okay, Abigail, I think you've got more boxes to pack and and, uh, (laughs) things to get ready. So um, thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you have safe travels out east.
5: Thank you, Ian. Take care.
1: Okay, uh, folks, when we come back, we're going to turn over to the financial aid corner of the the show to talk about forbearance. Uh, That's a really complicated word, and I'm excited to find out what it means. (laughs) We'll be right back.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
4: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Our humanity is a
0: thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, The Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests are people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety.
4: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com.
1: Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Before we get into our last topic here to talk about financial aid, I want to remind you that you can get in touch with us uh, through email at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. We're glad to take your questions at any time and talk about them on a future show. And you can always find a lot of our expert content on Facebook, at facebook.com slash collegecoach or on the web at blog.getintocollege.com. It's really fantastic content there. All right, for our next segment, I'd like to welcome my colleague in financial aid. She is one of the most organized people that I know. She is a tremendous financial aid expert. Uh, Please welcome to the show, Beth Feinberg-Keenan. Hey, Beth.
3: Hey, Ian. How are you?
1: I am doing wonderfully, and I am really excited to learn about forbearance. And so we're going to start with just the basic, what is it? What is forbearance?
4: So in short,
3: Ian, it's really just the ability to put off paying your student loans um, or paying less on your student loans. And there are different reasons why you might be granted a forbearance, uh, somebody who might have high debt-to-income ratio, uh, maybe you have an extended illness, uh, loss of a job, and these are basically reasons due to economic hardship. But during um, federal loan consolidation, uh, so for those borrowers who are looking to consolidate their loans and they can't afford that required monthly payment, they may consider postponing payments on their loan until that consolidation process is complete. Or uh, for individuals who want to standardize their repayment um, when their loans their loans start making payments on their loans... It's another reason that uh, many borrowers look at um, putting their loans in forbearance. So what I mean by that is you have a six-month grace period on your loans until you have to start making payments. So okay. let's say that you get your undergraduate degree and you, are, you start paying back your loans and then you decide to go back for an advanced degree, for a graduate degree, for a professional degree. And you take out new loans. So the loans that you have up for undergrad, those loans are going to go into repayment Thirty days after you finish that new degree, but you have a six-month grace period on this on your new loans. So some borrowers may not want to start making payments on those old loans, so they'll place those old loans into forbearance in time when their payments are due, to coincide with those new loans that they're um, that they're going to be paying back.
1: Gotcha. Um,
3: and the last thing, Ian, that you also just need to keep in mind too, in terms of forbearance, this is a program available to those borrowers who have federal loans. Uh, So we're talking about direct loans, um, the old self loans, uh, plus loans, and Perkins loans. This doesn't pertain to uh, those students who took out private loans. This is a federal program available to to borrowers.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So we've talked before about deferring loans. Uh, When getting back in school, if you've lost a job, you you can do a loan deferment. But what's the difference between that loan in deferment versus forbearance? So
3: deferment is, you know, really specific um, due to certain criteria like, you know, economic hardship, unemployment, and you have to meet certain criteria in order to put your loans into deferment. I think back to when I um, graduated from college, I was unemployed. I actually took advantage of an unemployment deferment, but I had to prove to my servicer that I was actively looking for a job. So every six months, I had to show them that I had actually applied to five different jobs and I had to be registered with the with the Department of Employment and Training, but if I opted to actually put my loans in forbearance, I wouldn't have had to go through all that process. It would have been a lot easier, and I would have just had to submit a letter to my servicer and say, "Hey, I can't make these payments right now. I'm having economic, you know, some economic difficulties. Can you postpone my payment? And typically, most servicers are going to grant that. Um, the other reason that it's a little bit harder to get deferment is for those borrowers who have subsidized loans, they regain their interest subsidy. So those, those loans aren't getting any bigger. So the federal government wants to make sure that you know, they're granting deferment to those individuals who, in fact, qualify for deferment. But unsubsidized loans, whether they're in deferment or forbearance, interest is still going to accumulate during that period of time. So it's cheaper for borrowers to place their loans into deferment versus putting them into forbearance. So I, I always recommend to borrowers, when you're calling your servicer, ask if you qualify for a deferment first before you explore a forbearance. It's going to, it's going to save you a little bit of money. Um, because during forbearance, while you're not required to make any payments, interest is a Q&A on all loans, a both subsidized and unsubsidized loans. So if you're not paying the interest on those loans while you're not making payments on those loans, what's going to happen is its interest is going to be capitalized. And that loan is likely to be larger when you get out of that forbearance.
1: Gotcha. So that, I mean, that seems like something that you really want borrows to be aware of. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about interest accruing during forbearance? So this is, this is not something where everything halts. Uh, you, it sounds like you, you can stop making payments and put those off for a period of time. How long is that period of time, and where does the interest question fit into it?
3: So, you know, that's a great question, and it's often that I talk to borrowers, and they're like, I don't know how my loan got so big. I haven't been making payments, but what happened to it? So let me uh, provide you an example, because I think this is really the best way for you know, our listeners to understand what that actually means in terms of dollar amount. So let's say that you borrowed a loan for $40,000. And the interest rate on that is 6%. And you're currently in repayment. Uh, your monthly payments are $450 a month for 10 years. Now let's decide something happens and you actually need to reach out to your servicer and you have to ask him if you can put your loan into forbearance. So the first thing to keep in mind is that interest is going to be accruing on that loan daily. So if we do the math, In a perfect calculation, we have a $40,000 loan at 6%. Interest is accruing daily. So we're looking at about $200 a month. And the way that I calculated that was I took that $40,000 loan and multiplied it by 6%. And then I divided that by 12 months to get what we're looking at for interest on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that, if Mm -hmm. if you're not making any payments for one year, that's $2,400 in accumulated interest. If you extend that for two years, now that's $4,800 in accumulated interest. So when you go back into repayment, your original loan that had a balance of $40,000, your balance is now going to be $44,800. And at 6% and continuing to repay that loan over 10 years, guess what happened to your loan payment? It also went up. Your loan payment now is $500 a month versus the $450 that you're originally paying on that loan before you postpone those payments through forbearance. So it might be a short-term solution, but in the long run, if you're thinking about like, hey, I can't afford that $450 payment, and you're not paying interest, guess what? When you get out of forbearance, your loan payment is likely going to be higher.
1: Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, it can get quite a bit bigger. These, these are not small interest amounts, especially on a larger loan. And you can you can leave things in forbearance for a while, it sounds like. You mentioned up to two years in, in this example. How long can a loan be put in, in forbearance? Is that something that you're able to do for a long period of time? Well, most servicers
3: are going to grant you forbearances for periods of six months or 12 months. And most okay. services also have a cap that they're going to grant it for no more than three years. But in reality, in all the years that I've worked in financial aid, I have come across so many people, somehow, they've actually been able to postpone their, their loans for a longer period of time. And really, much to their amazement, they're like, how did it get so big? And so it's so important to understand that, while they have to understand that, you know, they're not required to make any payments on the loan, that loan is going to get bigger over time. So this really isn't a long-term strategy. This is no. a short-term band-aid. You know, this is really that short-term band-aid. I can't afford my monthly payments for this amount of time. But if you continue to prolong and reapplying for forbearances because you have to reapply every 6 to 12 months with your servicer, guess what? That won't likely to get out of control, and you may actually find yourself off in a worse situation than you originally were when you started to postpone those payments.
1: Now, it sounds like a big problem here is the accrual of interest that's happening and, and letting that to build up steam and and potentially cause a greater payment when you come out of forbearance. What about just paying the interest? Can you just say, okay, well, I'm, I'm accruing this interest. I'll go ahead and pay that down, and, and then I'll, I'll keep the same total loan, and I'll keep my same payments, and, and this will buy me some time. Can you do that?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. When, you know, when I'm talking to borrowers and they're looking for some type of short-term relief, one of the things that I often bring up to them is, can you afford a smaller payment? Can you pay interest only? Um, if you are able to pay interest only, if you're able to make a smaller payment, because that's another option also available to you within forbearance. You don't have to totally postpone your payment, but you can ask your servicer if you can actually make a smaller payment, and it's going to save you a lot of money over the life of the loan. You can just log into your servicer's website. Um, you can let them, you know, you can make one-time payments when you're applying for forbearance. You can check off a box on the application, indicate you want to pay the interest, so you'll only rebuild the interest. So you have that flexibility. If there's somebody who thinks that maybe you can't pay the interest every month, then you know what? Don't check that box off. But when you have extra cash flow, you have a little bit more money, then go into the servicer's website and apply a payment towards your loan. It's not going to take you out of forbearance. So if that's one of your apprehensions of doing that, don't worry. If your servicer sees that you made a payment, they're not going to pull you out of forbearance and all of a sudden make you start making those larger payments. Mm-hmm.
1: Great, great. I think that's really helpful. This was thing a thing that I thought was going to be really challenging to talk through, but I think there's a, a lot to understand there. And it sounds like it's a great thing just to be communicative with your servicer to figure out what the options are and, and talk mm-hmm. that through. So, Beth, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and, and talking us through a challenging topic.
3: Thanks, Ian, for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Of course, and uh, thank you all for joining us today as listeners. It's been a, a pleasure for us to walk you through some considerations for this summer as you kick off your vacation time and other awesome summer activities. So maybe you're listening to us on the way to the beach or on a flight across the country uh, to a to a vacation destination. We're glad to have you. Next week, things will get steamy on the show when we talk all about science, technology, engineering, art, and math programs uh, at different colleges and universities. I know that was a bad pun. Um, in our office hours, we'll also talk about the pros and cons of starting your high school career at a two-year college and then transferring. And in our finance corner, we'll give you some tips for preparing your teen for college on the financial aid side. What is a budget anyway? What do they need to know? Finance expert Laurie Peltier just saw her daughter graduate college, and she's got all the tricks in the book. She'd love to share them with you. So until next time, have a wonderful week. We look forward to connecting you here on Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton.